Welcome to Pemba On Demand. I'm Norm Chapin, your host. I am very excited to welcome you to our podcast. Pemba On Demand is produced for physicians interested in professional development. We will be discussing a wide range of topics on the podcast. I will be interviewing physician leaders from the U.S. and from other countries who have graduated from the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee. These physicians will be sharing stories of professional and personal growth, overcoming challenges in their organizations, and discussing key leadership skills they have learned from the MBA program and ongoing professional development. Officer at Northwell Health. Northwell Health is the largest healthcare provider in the state of New York. Prior to joining Northwell Health in 2017, he served as the president and CEO of New York City Health and Hospitals, a provider of acute, post-acute, and outpatient services, as well as providing insurance products in the New York market. He was appointed to that role by then-Mayor Bill de Blasio. He has also served as the former CEO of Cook County Health in Chicago between 2011 and 2014. Throughout his career, he has focused on population health issues, equity in health care, and the impact of the social determinants of health on our patients. He began his career in Brooklyn at the Lutheran Medical Center. He is also a Pemba alumnus from the class of 2000 and has his CPE from AAPL. He has served on many local, regional, and national organizations and is really a nationally recognized physician leader. Tonight, I'm pleased to have Dr. Ram Raju joining me. Ram is going to talk with us about quality in healthcare tonight. Ram, welcome very much to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. I, I am excited to share your topic tonight. I know you and I have participated in several meetings where we talked about quality in healthcare, and I thought it would be great to have you on the podcast. Oh, great. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here. So, so maybe we could start a little bit and, and talk about, uh, you've had a long career in healthcare. You graduated from the Physician Executive MBA class at the University of Tennessee back in 2000, and you've held many leadership positions in healthcare. But I'd be interested if, if you could just take a few minutes to share with us what you think the current state of quality is in healthcare and what you think some of our top priorities are in healthcare as far as quality and safety? So, you know, I think uh, when we started with quality in early 2000, maybe late 1990s, quality was really a differentiating tool, marketing tool. Uh, people touted their quality of care, and then based on that, they were trying to get more of market share. But uh, in the last 20 years, Mark, the quality has become a commodity. It becomes uh, more a commodity. It's not really a distinguishing feature because most of the organizations have really uh, gone a long journey in quality. And overall, the quality of care in this country, both quality and safety, has improved uh, precipitously, tremendously. So the, the, the concept of able to market a, a, an organization based on quality or safety, marketing on what we call as a cost effectiveness, how effective it is, cost effectiveness, efficiency of care, and most importantly, I think uh, the performance of the healthcare delivery system. Uh, is it uh, is it easy to access? What is, uh, what is your overall satisfaction? 
wedded, right? And also, most importantly, I think the future will be more on convenience rather than based, I think, based on safety and quality. Don't misunderstand me. I think quality and safety are very important. It'll continue to be a factor. But people are going to say, you know, is a healthcare convenient to me? You know, can I get my doctor at the time I want it? It is available to me and uh, how long I have to wait and uh, what are things I need to get it done? So those kind of differentiating factors uh, more than quality and safety because I think most mostly other organizations have done that well. So it sounds like you're really talking about sort of a, a, a transition or a modification of the definition of quality in to, to be more than just did the procedure go well. You're talking about mm-hmm. access. You're talking about mm-hmm. how the patient or the patient's family potentially experiences the organization, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, quality is not just on care alone. It's uh, the other factors which come into picture makes a difference. And if you move on to of care, you know, we all know that the quality of what we deliver in healthcare only controls 20% of the outcomes in a chronic diseases in this country, and 80% depends on other issues. So we also have to learn to move away from treating a disease than treating a person. So we are very, very good in treating diseases, and we have done that a good job, but we need to make that, that, that pivot to go and treat the, the persons because the disease does not exist in a, in a vacuum. A disease exists in a person. So the outcome of the disease in that person depends purely not on the, the quality of care we deliver. It also depends on the socioeconomic condition in which they live. Uh, the, the, the case in point is that you could treat the best diabetic doctor in the whole world, but if the person lives in a, a, a food insecure area, not able to adequately manage his, his food needs and able to follow your, your dietary advice, then that expertise is not going to produce the results you expect to produce. So I think we have to move more and more into a, a holistic medicine of, of treating patients and their circumstances, their surroundings, and their social issues, as well as we do with their disease process. So how do individual physicians respond to this challenge? I mean, this is an amazing challenge in terms of physicians not just focusing on an individual patient's disease, but thinking about all of those social determinants that you referred to. But how, how do we... How do we respond to that new challenge? It has happened three different ways. One has got to be, of course, utilization of data. The physicians and the hospital system should use the Z code in the ICD-10, which basically captures the social data of the of the person, and that should be captured so that you get a, a insight into the patient's social issues, which comes with that. Because zip code matters. In fact, I would argue the zip code matters sometimes more than the genetic code of the person. How long you live and how well you live depends on where you live. And the zip code makes a difference. That's the first thing. The second thing will be the government has got to start reimbursing doctors not only based on the CMI, the case mix index, and also based on the social risk of the person. Because if a patient is socially at risk, the doctor spends more time with them and there are more challenges to encounter. So that has to be taken into consideration. And the last but not the least is the doctors need to understand that we have to understand the patient much better. 
when we kind of tell them to follow certain things, you know, eat this food, they may not have enough money to eat that buy the food. Because cheap food is still, uh, what do you call it, fast food. It's cheaper, you know, healthy food is expensive. Or we tell them, you know, you need to take a, a nice walk every day, but they live in an apartment complex, which is like five stories and no, no, what do you call it? There's no elevator system. So they cannot really walk up and down and go for a walk in the apartment. Or they live in a, a, a neighborhood, which is not unsafe for them to do that. Or they don't have support systems to take them out and do those things. They have an iso social isolation, which basically creates a, a bigger issue. So. We have to, the physician need to understand the various confounding factors which come into picture to do that. That simply means it's not going to happen overnight. And we need to start teaching medical students from a time saying that, please do not treat the patient, the disease of the patient. Understanding the patient gives you much better outcomes than just understand the disease. So we have done a good job understanding disease much better. And we have done a great job. That's why we have the, the greatest rescue care system in the world. Uh, but we do not have a real health care, real health care, not, not talking about sick care system. The real health care system uh, is not there. So we have to figure this out how to do that. So three things, government, reimbursement, data collection, and the, the mindset of the physicians all need to come into picture. So, as you know, there's a lot of quality metrics that healthcare organizations and physicians are being held accountable for by payers, by the government itself, by various uh, accreditation agencies and those types of things. What, how would you see those change in order to help us achieve the type of quality and improved outcomes that, that we need to see in this country? Okay. I think the first thing we need to happen is, as it's happening right now, is we are becoming more and more outcome measures as opposed to process measures. So the quality, as we first envisioned, is all about quality measures, you know, about process measures. Uh, now we are becoming more and more of outcome measures. Then the outcome is also, we are measuring outcome of disease, but not necessarily outcome of the patient. So that has to be taken into consideration, right? For example, your diabetes may be under control, but the patient dies of other reasons, then the patient dead anyway. So it doesn't matter how well you control your diabetes. So the outcome measures has got to move away from disease-based outcome measures into patient-based outcome measures in the overall income. So to do that, you need to really look at the entire... So the, the, the future will depend on, especially the cost escalation which happens in the, in our country, the future will demand that people produce outcomes for the patients, uh, not outcome for the disease, as, as which is a little different from outcome for the patient. And of course, uh, the process measure need to be retired. You know, it doesn't matter you give a beta blocker to the patient with uh, heart attack or you gave them aspirin, you know, as a patient with angina. I don't think no one really worries about it because that is not a, a very effective way of measuring the quality of care given to a patient. Just because you gave something, it doesn't mean that benefit of the patient or the patient took it. So I think that is where it's going to change. I think the government is going to change that, and as as well as uh, as well as uh, we're going to change, uh, the the companies are going to change that because they are more interested in making sure the patients are well and not necessarily to control the diabetes better. So they they control diabetes better, but the patient has got renal failure. Then that doesn't really make a 
a big difference for them. So that's that's one thing which is going to happen. And with this escalating, you know, cry for equity in medicine, which is between more and more a buzzword in healthcare, the government is probably also going to look at a, a slice and dice the data based on not purely diabetic patients, also various ethnic groups of diabetes, how well the the diabetes uh, program worked well for blacks in your in your population or in a patient population. How will it work for Hispanic population? How will it work for people in a in a rural areas as opposed to people in the geographic areas? You know, so all those things are going to play a big role in the thing because there is a huge discrepancy in the in the outcomes. Right, the, the rural population has got classically poorer outcomes. Uh, compared to the you know the people who got access to healthcare, and the people with the insurance do much better, and the people with public insurance tend to do worse in the outcomes when they compare to the people with private insurance. People who's got a higher education uh, tend to do well with outcomes than the people who, are, who don't have the education component. Language barrier is a big issue. We continue to have problem, and of course the last but not the least is. Uh, the the older people, the people who are you know older people tend to have much poorer quality of care, which we saw you know in spite of the fact that uh, you know COVID uh, took a lot of older people you know uh, you know by by a, a predominantly very high number of mortality, uh, not all of them could be attributed to the old age alone. It is a lot of them has got to be attributed also to the, the access to healthcare and the quality of healthcare which delivered in the nursing homes in our country it is far, far, you know, far less desired than what is being done in some of the high-class hospitals. There's a huge discrepancy. If you, are a, if you come to the hospital, you get a great care, and then you go to nursing home, the care kind of drops way down because we don't have enough uh, uh, personnel in the nursing homes to take care of you the way you need to be taken care of. So there is a huge disparities in healthcare and uh, equity. It's not basically on racial, ethnic, region. Definitely it's a big issue. It's also based on economic factors, educational factors, rural versus, you know, and uh, urban, as well as uh, old age or the young age, as well as languages. So all these things are going to be play a more and more vital role. If you want to deliver so-called quality of care, then we need to take into consideration all those things. We just cannot be focused purely on one disease and one measurement. So what are the, I mean, our healthcare system is very complex, as you know, and I agree with you. I think our healthcare system here in the U.S., it's where people go for rescue care, right? If they have an oncology issue or they have a serious health issue. I mean, I don't think our, our healthcare system is paralleled anywhere in the world, but what is it that needs to change about the structure of our healthcare system in order to align the incentives properly to achieve better population health and to be able to allow physicians to really get engaged in addressing uh, social determinants of health or health inequities in their communities? No, the healthcare system is is uh, designed for a different century. 
you know, we need to redesign the healthcare delivery system in a different way. Healthcare delivery system designed for the early part of 20th century, we still carry on the same thing, which has got to be very different. That was basically designed as a disease management. They basically felt at the time, if you manage a disease and you do well. So we did a good job managing diseases much, much better over a period of time. That's why we excel in rescue medicine. We are very, very good at it. But the focus has got to change, not just managing disease, keeping population healthy. Uh, that concept was a very different concept. So that concept was basically given for many years to uh, very peripherally to public health departments, that their job to give the vaccination, immunization, keep them all happy and, you know, catch rats and, uh, you know, use, you know, muscular terminals, whatever you do, just make sure it's all right. But that has become, that has changed. That has changed a lot, right? COVID has shown how uh, a public health can really tax a, a system so badly it is how much it is intertwined uh, public health and the uh, and the healthcare other 15 years ago we never cared public health is here healthcare is there and a very large small portion of our hospital systems uh, really you know worked closely with the public healthcare system unless there are one one amazing example in the differences cook county where i was uh, i manage the healthcare delivery system as well as i'm in charge of public health of cook county so there are very very few municipalities, counties in the country, which kind of combine that. But big rude awakening during COVID, it says, if you don't manage the public health well, your healthcare delivery system is going to be, you know, completely catastrophically affected. So we need to change that. So that's, that's what is going to happen over a period of time that people need to understand that uh, the disease focus has got to change into health focus. And uh, that's that's what is going to see in the future as it happens. That's what they have to do. And that simply means we have to we have to train our, our incoming doctors in such a way so that they're just not uh, keepers of uh, uh, management disease are also keepers of good health. I think that that's a great insight. And it's a very difficult problem. But I know that you've been very involved in public policy, you've been involved with several administrations advocating for changes in the healthcare system. Are you still involved in public policy? And maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the types of things that you're engaged in right now. Yeah, I, I, I still teach a, a, a very popular course of, you know, it's Roosevelt School of Public Policy in New York City, which is one of the very famous public policy institutes, you know. It actually happens to be in the old house of FDR. FDR's oh. old New York he, he donated to the, you know, CUNY system, and that's where the public policy institute is there. So I, I, I teach there. Every Wednesday I go there, I see the big picture of uh, FDR, you know, trying to get out of the car. So it's a kind of a historic place. So uh, the, 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 the course is about, you know, policy and politics of acquiring equity in United States. Because it's nothing to do with equity. The health care in the United States is policy-oriented. Government, to a great extent, controls the healthcare delivery system in this country. They decide who to pay, who is eligible for payment, how to pay, how much of money to pay, what are all the measurements you will be measured on. They license you, they license your organization. Every instrument you buy has got to be approved by FDA. Every medication you administer has got to be approved by somebody. So this is a, a tightly controlled government system. So 
the policy is absolutely important. I don't think the, the doctors to great extent don't understand how much the health policy really intertwined in their lives and they, their practice of medicine and what happens with that. So that is, you know, that's the first thing they need to understand. And of course, health policy is absolutely tied to politics. You know, uh, there is no, there is no altruistic healthcare policy in this country for many, many, many years. Every policy is controlled by ideological basis of what need to be done. So that is the issue. We have to really, we have to understand that. So the health policy going forward, you know, we are, we are in the process of every government looking at it. Okay. <coughs> we have to control the healthcare cost. We have to maintain the quality. At the same time, we have to make the healthcare more equitable across the country. Right. The people do it very differently. The, the people of, uh, you know, liberal persuasion, they think that healthcare, you know, it, it need to be, you know, more equitable because it is our moral responsibility and social obligation to pe keep, pe keep people healthy. From a conservative philosophy saying that it is better to have a healthy population because healthy population is the most productive population for economic development. So whichever way you look at it, uh, people agree that the population need to be kept healthy because uh, whatever reasons you want to keep them healthy for, right? So that is where the, the, the commonality of the, of the ideological ends. Then the question is how to get it done. That is where the big fight goes on, whether we should fund it or they should earn it. Is healthcare is a privilege or is it a right? So these discussions keep going on for a long period of time and I continue to happen over a period of time. But everybody agrees to a great extent, whether we get a universal healthcare in this country or not, everybody agrees that there must be some form of, you know, accountability in healthcare to the, the persons as well as they need to understand both are accountable and how much, what percentage is each is accountable is something which is still being debated. So the future healthcare policy is about, you know, cost, cost containment to a great extent, keeping population healthy and keeping the healthcare funded the right way as a part of it and managing, how do we manage this large number of uh, older generation, especially baby boomers like me who are retiring uh, and then they happen to be living for a longer period of time. And also people who are living with the chronic diseases uh, much more effectively managed uh, compared to 30 years ago. So people are really managed. The people who just died of chronic illnesses are living longer and longer because we have a much better way of managing them. So all those things uh, puts a huge problem on the demand side. And then there is a huge problem on the supplier side because we do not have enough uh, healthcare providers to provide services for for this uh, aging population, uh, especially with the large amount of chronic disease management needs as we go into that. So that is where we need to manage. So it's more of an, not a healthcare issue, it's also an economic issue in this country. I think we need to understand that because the American economy and the healthcare is uh, in integrally intertwined. Uh, you can't separate one from another because we are spending close to 18% of the GDP on healthcare. So anybody is going to say, wait a minute, 
if somebody says it's not an economic problem, this is really a, a medical problem, I think that they're not right because this is a really an economic problem going forward uh, in, a, in a way to put it. One of the things that you mentioned was the nationalized or, or socialized health care system. Uh, do you think that the with the amount of government involvement that you were talking about and that we've seen, especially since Medicare came onto the scene, it certainly has increased over the last several decades. And it's become a fact of life in in healthcare. And it's, mm-hmm. as you say, it's intertwined in terms of how we provide healthcare now. But I'd be interested to know your opinion as to whether or not we can achieve the outcomes that we would like to achieve with the commercial versus governmental payer dichotomy that we have in this country? No, I think when I mean universal health care, I do not mean universal health care provided by the government. Mm-hmm. You know, there are there are countries which have got universal health care which are not necessarily provided by the government. There are universal health care because we basically had a, a very strong employer-based health care for many, many decades. And that has dwindled. It dwindled over a period of time. The, the benefits are cut. And, and over a period of time, the privilege of uh, of, uh, of uh, health insurance, a part of the of the job, is kind of going down. There are not many people are you know doing that. People are the health savings accounts are coming into picture. People are managing their own way. People can choose their own insurance. And the ACA basically gave them an opportunity for employers to say, "Hey, they, I'm not providing care. You can go and get your own care through the ACA." So all those things are really kind of. Uh, change the way we did that. So I do not want to first categorize uh, universal health care does not mean universal health care provided by the government. But but the question would be, uh, we as a country should uh, expect every one of us to have health care insurance. You know, we know that every one of us who drive a car should have a car insurance. Right? We, we kind of take that for granted. Why do we do not insist on everybody who has to have an health care insurance of some sort? Right? For the people who can't afford it, we need to figure out how to make it affordable, Right, the way we want to do that. And of course, that must be something. Otherwise, everybody suffers. What happens here is that then the problem is when they don't have insurance, that does not mean they don't get care. That simply means that they get care for which they are not compensated for. People are not getting compensated for. So care is the same, whether you are providing through the insurance or not providing the insurance. The amount of care consumed is going to be exactly the same. I can argue with the healthcare economics, I can, you know, which I have studied this for over 20 years, is actually the cost is much higher. You know, for the people who really seek care for in the emergency department, uh, it is much more non-insurance, non-insured patients who continue to get primary care in the emergency department is more expensive to the taxpayers as well as to the to the the providers who provide this care as opposed to doing that. So it is the best interest of people for that everybody should have insurance of some sort because we all shown that people insurance are very judicious in using their care, uh, especially people who got insurance the co-pays. They really manage it, their care much, much better and they are much more careful in getting their, how do, you, how do you want to get their care and where do you want to get the care. The quality of care is definitely much better. And this kind of a huge amount of debt which they undergo both of the, of the patients side, as well as the providers who provide this care for uncompensated care, is also a big issue for them. So I think I think we have to understand that, uh, you know, having everybody having insurance is a good thing over a period of time, not necessarily provided by government, but there must be a mechanism for people to have that. And I don't think that is really wrong. Why are we not? Why, how do we 
you know, have people you know, drive a car with the, with the insurance or you have a home, you get insurance, you travel by plane, you get insurance. You, <laughs> this is like an insurance mehavan is here in this, in this country. We believe in that. Any, any procedure which has got a, a risk involved, and you know, we where we the risk will be, you know, enormous amount of money will be spent on. Then we tend to insure them. Yeah. So I don't know why we don't insure these people. So I think the, this insurance debate has got caught in the ideological basis because people believe that the universal insurance means in you know, a socialized medicine. No, it is an individual responsibility that you need to have something so that your care will not be transferred to me. I think that's a great distinction because you're right. In my mind, I've always thought that universal health care or insuring everyone would default back to a governmental program and would become sort of like a socialized health care. But it's a good reminder for me that there are other options besides that that include private and public collaborations to make sure that we have a population of people who have adequate insurance. Going without or medical insurance right now, I'm continually hearing horror stories about people who are driven into bankruptcy because they don't have insurance and they have health care needs that they just can't afford. I read somewhere a few months ago that it's the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States now. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Because you know, the problem is the, the productivity of the people gone down tremendously because we are a nation which uh, which depends as we as a, as we have a nation which is getting older and older. So we need younger, younger people because those are the people who are going to be the productive citizens who are going to keep the economy going. So so we need to have a productive, healthy population to get that done. And if that requires people to remain healthy and, uh, and you know, then insurance plays a big role in healthcare access, definitely does, and the quality of healthcare they receive, then it is, I think it is kind of extremely intuitive to say, hey, wait a minute. If I want to keep you, if I can give you $20 worth of healthcare and I can keep you so that I can get $80 worth of productivity out of you, right? So uh, I think that's economically sound model. Whether even if you're not a, you know, a liberal thing, you still believe, hey, I want to have an economically productive, healthy population so that that's the only way I might keep my economy growing. Otherwise, my economy will not grow on, on just a lot of older people. Great. Well, thank you for that insight. This podcast is sponsored by the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville's Haslam College of Business. In less than one calendar year, this program will equip you with valuable business acumen and leadership development not found in traditional medical school curriculum. Are you ready to join the longest-running physician-only MBA program in the country and a network of nearly 1,000 PEMBA graduates? Visit tiny.utk.edu forward slash POD podcast for information about this exciting opportunity. And now we'll return to the episode. I'd like it if you could share with us a little bit about how you became so involved and so knowledgeable in public policy, healthcare policy. What was it that sort of led to your transition from a clinician into a physician who engaged in these types of topics? You know, the, the process was kind of very 
kind of little gradual because uh, I went into, I came to Pemba because I'm a surgeon for many years and my hospital was, was going through a huge managed care what it called tsunami, which was sweeping across mm-hmm. the United States in in nineties. You know, everybody was every hospital trying to. Well, the managed care was very new at the time. And the hospitals were trying to you know merge themselves, join themselves to, to have better market you know leverage to get a better managed care contracts. You know, physicians are forming IPAs and you know groups and all those things, which are all new. So my hospital went was going through the same thing, and they, being in a in a in a, in a poorer neighborhood and also a teaching hospital, but didn't have much of a, a big deep pockets. They really was exploring how can we keep the hospital, you know, uh, stay economically viable. So the idea came out that we need to start a, a trauma center, you know, and uh, because everybody say trauma center loses money, but, uh, you know, we, we looked at it that uh, the location of my hospital, the most of a trauma will not be what we call as a guns and knife club. They've all penetrating trauma. Most of them will be motor vehicle accidents, which usually pays well because they eventually have no fault insurance, which comes in or somebody's insured. Or if they're not insured, they're always a lawsuit. And then you actually get the money, whatever they are awarded. They're part of the money comes back to the hospital for their care, you know, because they are indebted to you. So so we kind of do this. So I came to Pemba because I understand the economic model. How do we create a trauma center and how many admissions you need? What should be the money I should get? So I needed to, that's what I came into the thing. So followed by that, and I went into trauma and then more and more got administrative involved. As I got an administrative involved, in, I, I understood how much the government plays a role in the healthcare. In the, they have a bigger say in healthcare than anybody then I ever realized. Because like any most of doctors, I thought that I am I'm the I'm the king of the castle. I decide what I should do to my patient, what patient know, I write the prescription, I have the power, I decide who to see, when to see. No, that's absolutely not right. I, I knew that's not true. I said what I can do and what medication I can I can prescribe depend on the HMO tells you that is in the formula or not. The patient comes back to me and say, Doc this prescription not covered. Can you write me another prescription? They say, no, the hospital said, no, DRG, 3.5 days, discharge a patient today because you are really, you know, your patient overstaying. Get him out of here. Or the company says, I can't approve MRI because uh, your MRI is not approved. Because it's not indicated. So your practice was so much curtailed by so many things a part of it, right? So when I understood that how much the government controls it, then I got interested in what, how does the government control healthcare? Through policy, through reimbursement, through mechanisms, regulatory mechanisms, approvals, you know, a certificate of need. And when you want to do that, I want to go to a trauma center. I got to go before the government and say, there is a need for the trauma center in my locality. I got to prove. So everything I do, you realize that when you're administrating, not when you're a, a practicing doctor, because you're just in a small fish tank, you know, you're just basically trying to manage your thing and you think that's a Pacific Ocean. Whereas that's, that's your, just your fish tank. And that you're there, you are the king. So 
when I understood that policy, I got interested in policy. Then I started, mm-hmm. you know, involved in 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 the healthcare policy almost in every presidential campaign for the last twenty years. You know, I was involved in making shaping policies, and uh, the culmination come came in when we were all a uh, few of us were involved in crafting ACA. You know, in in two thousand nine and ten to get that done. So I always got involved in policy. The policy does with the the politics, the social obligation, the prevailing trend of the orders, as well as the economy, all this thing come together. I'm the practice of medicine. So this is a unique combination. I enjoyed it because this is like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was able to look at the policy from a doctor's angle, from an economic perspective. I looked at it from the social perspective. I looked at it from the political perspective and ideological perspective. So you look at that, that's where the policies are made. They're not made in, in isolation. They're not made because the policy is a great idea. The policy is made by, it's, it's like a sausage making factory. The, the, the process is not very good. But the end product is good. So when you started out in your surgical career, you when you say you were uh, we're good at rescue medicine, you really lived rescue medicine as a trauma surgeon yeah. then. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I you thought in, that's I'm sorry. Were you in physician leadership before uh, you went to Pemba, or was Pemba what propelled you into assuming leadership positions? No, I I was in, in a in leadership position, but only in the department of surgery, right? I was not in a leadership position in the hospital or in across the departments. Then you know, then across the hospitals and across the systems. So it kind of Pemba moved me through all those things, you know. So I just came in there. I was just a young physician leader, you know, trying to manage a department of surgery, you know, in a, in a hospital system, you know, which is the 500-bed hospital with a trauma center, a teaching hospital, but that's it. It's a lot of physicians, a lot of physicians see moving from physician leadership positions such as chief quality officer, chief medical mm-hmm. officer, chief safety officer into more of the operational or executive sides as a real Barrier. You you have been the CEO of two very very large healthcare systems, mm-hmm. Cook County and New York mm-hmm. City Health and Hospitals. How how did you position yourself to transition into those roles? You know, I I think the first thing we do is that the, the doctors are physicians as a rule are very reluctant to learn about other things. For example, when I, my first job was a, as a chief medical officer, then I want to move into chief operating officer. So I spent one year taking a special course in Harvard of everything about operations. I understood how to do group purchasing. How do you order and procurement? How does the air conditioner work? How does my, you know, the heating system works in there? How does he manage my dietary system, you know, food procurement and management within the hospital system? Right? How do I create a, a, a flood emergency plan for the hospital? All those things, which are the operational issues, you need to kind of know about it. Otherwise, what happened was when I was a chief medical officer, people used to say, okay, they'll come to you for some medical opinion. And they keep, they were in the, in the team, you are in the team, but you are not playing a big role. They'll say, yeah, okay, how are the doctors doing with it? Okay, you make sure the doctors are okay with what I'm doing. And my job is to go and sell it to doctors. Okay, that's what we're doing. But I'm a decision maker. 
the chief operating officer making decision on what did the chief financial officer making decision how much of money I'm going to give you, right? So I was not, you know, even though I I I kind of kind of persuaded myself to think I'm great to see you know, as chief medical officer. My role was kind of not a big decision maker in the hospital system at least. So I learned more and more about operations. So I need to get the street credibility. I need to be, the people in the administration, non-doctors think, okay, this is not one of the doctors we put in the administrative role because we want to show everybody that we we have doctors on our, on our C-suite. But it's more about, you know, do my opinions and my advice count. To do that, you need to understand the day-to-day management operations. So, you know, that that means that you need to understand how the medications are procured. You know, how do you want to do that? What happens with union contracts, about HR regulations, you know, about what are the HR regulations we can do? What, is, what does it mean? So all those things, right, hire and fire, how do you do that? How do you create a, a balance sheet? How do you manage the All those things need to be gained by that. So. I worked on that nearly for three years in taking various courses and operational issues so that my next step was chief operating officer. So I was able to convince people, okay, I know medicine, I know quality, I know safety. I also know operations. I know how to set up things. I know how to set up a you know, uh, procure something. I know how to how to hire people. I know how to, you know, mobilize people if you want to do that. So all those stuff, you know, mm-hmm. I understand how, what happens if my air conditioning system blows up tomorrow. I know how to get it done, right? Uh, not me personally, but I know how to mobilize people to get the things done. So that is what the, the big barrier you need to cross. Okay. So, Running the hospital is fine. Everybody thinks uh, the entire hospital is okay. We just run it. Doctors giving care to the patient is a hospital. You know, you know, in a way, you're right. You know, doctors and patients are the most important aspect of it. But to to provide the doctor to provide care to the patient, there has to be a system around you, making sure everything works. The the telephone works. The the air conditioner works. The food works. You know, the patients show up. The parking lot is filled. Right. Everything has got to be worked around you. Right. And I don't think the doctors understand the the the, the operational magnitude, which which makes the system work so that you can provide care to the patient. So how long were you in, you transitioned from, it sounds like a CMO role into a COO role. Yeah, how, COO. Long, how long did you remain in the COO position about, before you applied for the CEO roles? Four, about four years. Four years, okay. Yeah. And was that in the same institution or did you move from institution? No, I the system because the COO role, initially I was COO of a hospital. I was there for about two years. Then I, I wanted to learn more about, being a CEO of the hospital is different from CEO of a system, which is much bigger, right? So then I moved into a CEO of a system, public system in New York City Health and Hospitals. There I became chief operating officer and chief medical officer at both roles at the same time. So I had, so basically, then I moved on. I remained in the system role for about four years. Then I became a system CEO. As part of it, then I moved on to system CEO level. So I think uh, the progression is CMO, hospital CEO, system CEO, and system CMO CEO, then CEO. Because uh, a lot of times the doctors go from CMO to CEO, but in my opinion, again, it's my opinion, a lot of uh, CEOs, doctors who have done a great job, but uh, to a great extent, they depend on a very good operational person next to you. And 
if you don't have the right operational person, your role as CEO will be a problem because you don't know whether what he's telling you is right or wrong. You have no clue. So right. you need to have that 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 knowledge. You need to do that. So that is one of the areas where we have to really, you know, I was, you know, as we train physician leadership, we train them mostly on all the doctor-related stuff. But we also have to treat, treat them more about. We have to teach them more about, you know, what we call as, you know, purchasing, contracting, you know, mm-hmm. uh, human resources, right, management systems, right. All those things need to be taken into consideration. Capital. How do you how do you apply for capital dollars? How to develop capital dollars? What need to be done? It's all those things are so important. That's great. Well, that's great advice for people who are looking to sort of move out of the more traditional physician leadership roles in organizations. I think I really appreciate you sharing that with us. We've kind of reached the end of our time, and I always like to close by offering you one last opportunity to give the 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 listeners, the physicians who are listening to this podcast, any additional advice or particular lessons that you've learned in your career uh, as you've gone through these these stages you know more important than that let me say the things i wanted to do i could not achieve because my my healthcare career is kind of you know at the at the at the fag end of my healthcare career you know but the people who are coming behind me uh, the one thing i really wanted to achieve is that we need to change the status quo in healthcare I'm not talking about the operation management healthcare, right? That simply means the healthcare needs a lot of entrepreneurship and in innovation. Entrepreneur, the doctors are not necessarily good entrepreneurs. They don't know how to manage a new idea or new management. They have great ideas, but they don't know how to bring it to fruition. The ideas could be a new gadget, or it could be even be a new process, or a new procedure, or new structure, new governance, whatever it is, right? So all those things need to be there. So we need to have doctors always thinking an opportunity to to challenge the status quo and say, hey, how can we make it better? Because the organ the industries only get better when there is a innovation. And they change the way they think and they change the way they manage. Example is banking industry. How much it changed, you know, from viewing tellers, we go to the bank and stand on the line to cash a check to, you know, putting things in there. You know, they moved away from tremendously from the, the management system. Right? It is all given to them in their hand at their convenience of doing that. How can we make the healthcare that convenient? We talked about it initially. I'm going to come to complete something. Is healthcare convenient? You know, how can I make it more convenient for people to access, to understand the knowledge and the management, how to take care of themselves better? All those things have to be there. They all have to come with the new innovation, new entrepreneurship, the ability to manage a new ideas into a new new product or a new procedure. I could not do it. Now, you know, I tried to teach that more, but I was not able to do that. I was not having any entrepreneurship in my life. But I, I came to the realization very late in my career. By the time I said, hey, I need to develop some entrepreneurial skill, uh, my kind of, my, I'm running out of the clock. So, so I'm running out of the clock. So I just wanted to make sure that's something I really want in organizations, and especially teaching, you know, like Pemba. We need to really teach people right, how to be, you know, enterprise. that simply means doctors have great ideas, but how do you bring their idea to fruition? How to sell their idea? How to uh, capitalize on it? How to commercialize it? And 
that would be a great idea to do that. And uh, unfortunately, we have to really figure out a way of doing that. And even teach medical students. You know, we teach them historical medicine, but we need to teach them future medicine. The future medicine is probably more important than teaching historical medicine. Well, thank you, Ram. This has been great, and I appreciate those last comments. Innovation and execution and implementation with any one of those three elements. If we're implementing the wrong idea or we have a great innovative idea, but then it never gets implemented. It's not helping our healthcare organizations and ultimately not helping our country become healthier, which yeah. I think is, is what you've spent your entire career trying to achieve. So thank you very much for, for sharing that. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure. Again, I want to tell you, I owe it all to Pemba because without Pemba, I would not be anywhere, you know, where I am today. And more, not importantly about the jobs, about the positions, that's all immaterial to me. The knowledge I gained and the vision I developed and my focus has so much become broader, you know, because of Pemba. That's more important to me than, you know, the jobs and the positions they came and gone, but that's not important. But I was able to think differently and look at it, the problems much more in a different way because of Pemba and the teachers of Pemba. So I'm indebted to them for that. And I will do anything my, I can I can possibly do to promote and help on the future people coming from Pemba. Well, Thank you. For- a, yes, I'm sorry. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, and hopefully this won't be the last time we have you on the show. I hope that we can chat again because you've you've got such a tremendous amount of experience and knowledge to share. Thank you. Good good to see you. Have a great day. Good to see you as well. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Pemba On Demand, Physician Leaders Making a Difference. I was pleased with the topics we discussed tonight that actually went well beyond quality in healthcare, touching on healthcare policy, the necessity of physician leadership in healthcare, and hearing about Dr. Raju's career and his excellent recommendations and advice for physicians who are interested in COO and CEO positions within a healthcare organization. That wraps up our show for today. Thank you very much for joining and listening to the podcast. If you have any comments or questions regarding this episode, please feel free to add them in the comment section on our website, Tiny. Dot utk dot edu forward slash pod podcast. We love hearing from you and are happy to answer any questions you may have. I will add a link to the website below. Please also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast by clicking the subscribe button. Add Pemba on demand to your podcast library today. I would also appreciate it if you could leave a review of the podcast on your podcast player. Share the podcast with your friends and colleagues also. Please take good care of yourselves, and as always, good luck with your future.